Good morning. My name is Mark Davis. My wife Sue and I have been attending Joyce for 25 years. Um, been members for a little less than that. I'm here to read from the Gospel of Matthew in the Pew Bibles. It's on page 807. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jechamah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechamah was the father of Sheliel, and Sheliel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Um, join me as we pray for Jason. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship together, to sing of you, to learn from your word. Pray that you'll be with Jason as he presents the word, that you'll give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what you have to say as we look at the glory of God incarnate, um, preparing the way for the resurrection. Um, thank you for all you do for us. We ask these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Thought it'd be nice on my return to torment Mark Davis. <laughs> So uh, I'm not going to bury the lead here, right out of the gate. I'm going to tell you what I want to tell you. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham and the king who will reign forever on David's throne. That's what I want to rejoice in this morning. That's what I want us to see in the text this morning. As Jeff mentioned, we're actually in the second week of Advent, a celebration of the coming of Jesus, a season of waiting, a season of expectancy, anticipation. And we know that he has come once. 
We are celebrating. He has come. But we also know that he is coming again. So we look to that first advent with eyes that await another advent. A final advent. When all things will be made new. And all wrongs will be made right. But in this world we wait. Knowing that everything is not currently as it ought to be. Everyone here this morning, whether you're here as a believer in Christ, or you're here because you're exploring the faith, or you're here because some wonderful person dragged you to this building this morning, all of us know that things here are not as they ought to be. Do you feel that? Things are still broken. Can it be saved? Can it be healed? Can we be healed? Because of the one who came and who will come again, we know that the answer is yes. We will spend the next three Sundays, Lord willing, and Christmas Eve considering the first 25 verses of Matthew chapter 1. Uh, today, as Mark read for us, we're going to consider Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Next week, we're going to look at the parents of the Christ. Uh, two weeks from today, we are going to consider the beauty and the meaning of the name Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. And then on Christmas Eve, we will consider the beauty and the meaning of the name Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Does it seem odd to you that he comes right out of the gate with a genealogy? Does that seem strange to you? Like, you know, if you were giving him some advice on how to pull the crowd in, uh, you know, really be interested in the letter that he's writing, maybe don't start with a list of names, Matthew. Some people, I'm not going to ask. Some people, when they get to a genealogy in the Bible, they say, there's a genealogy. What's after it? Some people do that. Two things I want to say about that. First, for Matthew's original audience, this is written to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is truly the Christ. So right out of the gate, this would have been a very important piece of information that Matthew is giving them. Because he wants to convince them that Jesus truly is the promised Messiah, he had to remove this first stumbling block, which is he wanted to show people that Jesus is, from an earthly sense, a descendant of Abraham. First of all, he is Jewish. And a descendant of David. That he is a legitimate heir to David's throne. Do you ever think about that? Like he is making a claim here that from an earthly sense, Jesus has a claim to David's throne. If these claims are not true, then Jesus is not who he claimed to be. He is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So we have that. And second, just can we take a minute? Do you have your Bibles open? All right. I just want to think about how captivating verse 1 is. This is he comes right out of the gate. The book 
of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There are so many startling claims packed into this one sentence, which we're going to dive deeper into shortly. But Matthew is stating, first of all, the name, Jesus Christ, right? We've said this, we'll say it again. Christ was not his last name. He is not the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. Christ is his title, right? So Matthew comes right out of the gate and says, this is the Messiah. I'm going to tell you about the Messiah. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew Henry in his commentary on this verse says, the Old Testament, so genealogy, the word genealogy comes from the same root as the, the word Genesis, right? Beginnings, origins. So Matthew Henry in, in his commentary on this verse says, the Old Testament begins with the book of the generation of the world. And it is its glory that it does so. But the glory of the New Testament here excels it, that it begins with the book of the generation of him that made the world. That's, I, I was just, yeah, I had to stop my studies this way. That's awesome. The thing, here's the genealogy of the one who made the world. That's what Matthew's coming out of the gate with. So before we, we dive a little deeper into Jesus, son of David and son of Abraham, just a, a few brief notes on the whole genealogy. And maybe for some of you, it, if you did read this during the week or just now as, as Mark was reading, certain names in the genealogy stood out to you. Maybe they're names that, that make you marvel at the remarkable grace of God in using people like this to bring about the coming of Jesus. I was thinking, you know, a couple of years ago, we did a series on, on the women in this particular genealogy. I, I said a couple of years ago as I prepared. It was nine years ago. So I'm sure that you all just, it's fresh in your minds. But nine years ago, we did an Advent series on the four women mentioned uh, in these verses, Tamar and Rahab, Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah, and Ruth. Each of them, in different ways, a remarkable testimony of God's grace and faithfulness. A remarkable testimony that even in the most broken and sinful situations, the Lord can make good rise up. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Maybe you've been struck by the names of the kings listed in verses 6 through 11. Such a hodgepodge of kings who did good, kings who did evil, kings who started out good and then ended up evil. But I want to make note in 6 through 11, what we see is a general trajectory down, downward. The nation is descending farther and farther away from the Lord and uh, just as a side note here, for those, um, those who are newer to the faith or exploring the faith, uh, or you know, for those who are experienced in the faith, it could be a really good study throughout the week. If you're saying, like, I'm reading these names in 6 through 11, I don't think I know anything about them or minimally, I would say, take a look at these names and cross-reference stories of them in First and Second Kings, Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, and learn about their story. And see how they fit into this narrative. So if verses 6 through 11 or 6 through 12 capture the pinnacle 
to the descent because of sin, then verses 13 through 15 capture a descent from, uh, you know, they, they had been outcasts, they had been punished for their sin. 13 through 15 capture a descent into obscurity for the nation of Israel. If, if verses 1 through 12 are like a who's who of Scripture of the Old Testament, verses 13 through 15 are more like, who's that? I don't, I don't know that person. I don't know anything about their story. I, because the nation is now under Roman rule, no longer prominent. There is just no reason from an earthly sense to believe that the time had come for the Messiah to be born. The one on whom the government would rest. We sung it earlier. What fear we felt in the silent age. 400 years. Can he be found? We haven't heard from the Lord in a while. And here we are with this obscure guy Joseph. And this obscure woman Mary. Ultimately in the obscure town of Bethlehem. And the time is right. The fullness of time has come. It may well be that some here today are waiting. Not seeing the promises of God fulfilled. Not sensing the reality that Jesus is king. And he rules over all. But be reminded today, brothers and sisters, with the rest of our time. Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He rules over all and he is faithful to keep his promises. Amen. So Jesus is the son of David. What is the importance of Jesus being the son of David? It means that he is the legitimate heir to the throne in Judah and Israel. Above and beyond that, he is not simply a son of David, because a lot of these people in the genealogy had a legitimate right to the throne. He is not just a son of David, he is the son of David, the Messiah, the Savior, the promised King, the truest fulfillment of what was spoken in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God's covenant with David, when your days are, are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this prophecy and what follows it in verses 14 through 16 of 2 Samuel 7 were partially fulfilled in Solomon. But they were finally, the people of Israel, even after Solomon, they still awaited a final and fuller fulfillment of this prophecy. One who would reign on the throne of David forever and ever, whose kingdom would know no end. Jesus is the son of David. This child to come would be the king King of kings, Lord of lords. He is superior to David, superior to Abraham because he existed before them, right? He is the eternal one, God the Son. We're going to get more into the dual nature of Jesus next week. 
The fact that he is fully God and fully man. But this Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Jake read in Psalm 89, right? The, the promise to David. He's the fulfillment of what Jeff read in Isaiah 9, right? The one on whom the government would be on his shoulders. His kingdom will know no end. He is the fulfillment of so many other prophecies, so many other foreshadowings, so many other types that we see in the Old Testament. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David by his earthly lineage, and he is the rightful heir because of his eternal rule. He is going to rule. He is going to build his kingdom. That's what he came to do, right? He's going to sit on David's throne. So who's he going to conquer? Who is this king going to conquer? Satan. I heard it. I heard it. Was that you, Charlotte? That's a good answer. I actually have that written down right here. It will not be what the people expect, right? He's not going to be the king everybody's expecting, is he? He will not come to conquer Rome, but he will come to conquer Satan, sin, hardened human hearts, and death itself. I was reading Matthew's account of the triumphal entry this week. So Jesus is coming in. Coming in, triumphal entry, entering into Jerusalem. The people are laying down their palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna to who? The son of David, right? Hosanna to the save son of David. And in Matthew's account, what's the first thing he does when he gets into Jerusalem? Do you know? What do you, he cleanses the temple. He doesn't go in front of any government rules. He goes and he clears out the temple. He makes war against those who are defiling the temple. And then he would make war against the most unbeatable foes. Our king came to conquer the unconquerable. He will conquer by the strangest of means. He will conquer by submission to death. The religious leaders and the Romans are going to team up to squash this Jesus. Squash his message of salvation. This enemy is going to be silenced by them. And life will then go on as normal. But it is by this very means that he will take his rightful place as Lord and King. His death, this king's death, will be for our sin, for our rebellion. The son of David establishes his kingdom by laying his life down for his people. He established his kingdom by, by emptying himself and taking on the form of, of a human. And then he emptied himself even further by laying down his life for our sin. And he's the king. He lays down his life to bear their penalty for rebellion against who? Him. That's unbelievable. That's so not like us in our natural state, 
right? We would be the kings who want vengeance, right? I will, I will exact vengeance when you dishonor my name. Our king came to save those who dishonor his name. He will ultimately have vengeance on those who choose not to believe. This king's death would be to defeat the foes who have brought this world under a curse. Satan, sin, the wickedness of the human heart, the kingdom of darkness. And then after defeating them at the cross, our king would rise triumphantly and truly from the grave. Declaring victory over the last enemy, death itself. Full victory over all. Death and sin no longer have dominion. Jesus accomplished what David did not and could not. David, though a man after God's own heart, sinned. David died. David did not rise yet. There's a lot more I could say on this, but I'll save some for the other weeks. But I, I do want to deal with a question that might be on some hearts and minds. As you think about this topic, this subject of Jesus being the king, right? We're talking about how he has defeated. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. Do you believe that all of that is true? Do you believe that? Yes, yes I believe that too. But maybe a question is, if Jesus is really the king, like being described here, why does everything still seem so messed up? I mean, you're telling me Jesus is the king. Where is he? Where is the king? For many in this gathering, present company included, the last 21 months have been among the most difficult of your lives. While we wait for the final fulfillment of all that is promised, and we still see that things are broken and they're not fully all that they ought to be, I just thought it would be good to take a few minutes to remind you of some things because it can be easy to lose perspective. It can be easy to say, I don't see him reigning and ruling. I don't see him winning. And it's good to be reminded, and I hope you'll rejoice in this, he is king. And he does rule and reign right now. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Even if that was all I was about to bring to the table, brothers and sisters in Christ, how much more than enough is that? He has delivered us from the kingdom of the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We have been transferred from the dominion of darkness living in darkness and only hoping for darkness for all of eternity, pain and tragedy. And in Christ, he has rescued us from that dominion and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
if I had nothing else for you today, if that was all we talked about today, that is unbelievable. We are a gathering of those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his <laughs> beloved son, Jesus Christ. All grace, right? What did you do to earn that? Not a thing. And by the way, if you're here today and you're hearing me talk about this and you're saying, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. I just want you to say, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. And second of all, that offer is for you too. That offer is for all who believe in Jesus Christ. All who acknowledge that, that we have rebelled against the God who made us. That everything we do in ourselves is decidedly anti-God and pro-self-exaltation. And one day we are going to have to stand and give an account to the one who made us. That day could be today. It could be a hundred years from now. But it'll happen. And we have a God who loved the world so much that he sent his son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish in the domain of darkness. But will have everlasting life in the kingdom of Jesus. So just that is enough, right? That's the evidence of his kingdom. Just that. I got more. We have hearts that have been changed. We have desires that have been changed. A focus that has been changed. Did we do that? Did we make ourselves Christ-like? Did we make ourselves to desire him? To believe in him? No. He did it all. And there's a hundred and some testimonies of it right in this room. That's amazing. The kingdom is advancing. Consider also how our king is building his church. Bringing a people together from every nation, tribe, and tongue to display his greatness. A people who are showing his love. Bringing his gospel. Calling the world to trust in him. Consider how the church, imperfect as she is, by his grace, cares for the least and lowest. Reaches to the orphan and the widow. Considers no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Loves one another. Seeks to be a blessing. Have you considered that, that a gathering like this is a miracle? And an evidence that our king is ruling and reigning. He causes us to be, again, imperfect as we are. And finger pointed first at myself. But, but to love one another. And to seek to spread the knowledge of him everywhere we go. A city on a hill. And consider even further how our Lord sends his people into the workplace, 
or working in our homes and with our children, starting businesses, coaching teams, cleaning toilets, doing taxes, opening restaurants with the express purpose of glorifying his name in everything we do. This is the work of a king who is victorious currently and will be fully victorious. He rules and reigns even now, even when it's obscured. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, right? And it spreads and it grows. And look at what he has done in 2,000 years. And we don't know how many more years there are before he decides to wrap it all up. But I can guarantee you this, the king will continue to have victory. And he will continue to call people to look to the day when the victory will be fulfilled. But when we are looking at our lives and our circumstances and our situations and saying, I don't think he rules and reigns because I don't see it. Remember things like this. He rules and reigns. And you have a million evidences of it. You just choose not to look at them in certain situations. But we are encouraged when we do, right? Is it encouraging to you to think about, wow, he's had a lot of victory. He's really at work. He's doing mighty things. And it's all by his grace. We know that. All by his power. And he will continue that. All right. That was point one. I've been gone for three months. I mean... I've got a lot to say. No, I'm just kidding. Point two is much shorter. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is also the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised king and he is the promised seed. It is, it is a beautiful truth that Jesus is the son of Abraham. A true Jew, a true descendant of Abraham from an earthly sense. Again, Jesus is fully God, fully man. We'll dive more into that next week. But from an earthly sense, from earthly lineage, he is a son of Abraham and he is the son of Abraham. The Lord had promised to bless the whole earth through the offspring of Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord in the face of huge reasons to doubt, right? Kids, why did Abraham doubt that what the, the Lord said to him was going to come true? Couple reasons, right? Tell me. Why did Abraham not believe that he was going to be the father of, of a multitude? You can say it. He was old. And then God restated the promise to him 15 years later. And guess what? He's even older then, 15 years later. And he still didn't have any kids. He had no children and he was old and yet he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And the Lord kept his promise. Not just by giving Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, but he fulfilled this promise completely at the coming of Jesus. How long after Abraham was alive did Jesus come? Exactly. No, I'm just kidding. Approximately. Do you know? I, I, I got it around 2,000 years-ish. 
Could be 1,500, could be 1,800, could be somewhere in that range. All right, 1,000. I'll take whatever number you got. It's just got to be big. All I'm saying is, listen, if God made this promise to Abraham, right? He said that, that through him, all the nations were going to be blessed. And he actually fulfilled that promise. He fulfilled it with Isaac. But the real final and true fulfillment of it was almost 2,000 years later. That's pretty amazing. That's a long time to wait for a promise to be fulfilled. But all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Are you weary and heavy laden this morning? Wondering if God still cares for you? Wondering if God still sees you? The answer is always ultimately yes for the children of God. Jesus reminds us in his coming that we have a God who keeps his promises even when they seem slow in being fulfilled. That Jesus is the son of Abraham also reminds us that what he comes to bring will be received by faith alone. We see it in Romans, if time permitted, we could look in Romans chapter 4 or Galatians chapter 2 and 3, that the promise came to Abraham to be received by faith, not by works. Works can never produce the life that God desires. The law of God can never produce changed lives. The law of God shows us how far short we fall of God's glorious standard. Therefore, the truth that Jesus is a son of Abraham tells us that everything we have, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the filling of the Holy Spirit, all of it is pure grace to be received by faith. Never earned, never worked for, you couldn't work to earn this. All these generations, look, look at these generations in Matthew chapter 1. The, the thing that stands out the most is unworthy. They're not worthy to be in the lineage of Jesus. All these generations of unmerited favor in the genealogy point to the one who will show us how unmerited favor is possible. The coming of Jesus shows us clearly that we were not able to do what needed to be done to fix our problems. We could never overcome the curse. We could never overcome Satan. We could never overcome ourselves, our sin. The chasm is too wide. But rather than come to destroy us, he came to rescue us. And his rescue is for all who believe. Blessed are those to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Because Christ was raised, we know that this is true. The call is come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the promised seed of Abraham, the one who tells us that what you cannot do and what the law could not produce, God has done by sending his son. 
And so, while we are a people who wait for the final fulfillment of all his promises, we're in between right now. We see the first fruits of his kingdom. We do not see the kingdom in full. We are trusting in his promises. We are trusting that we will be with him one day in the new heavens and the new earth. But we don't see it yet. We are waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. We have, we have a couple minutes. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I just think I read it this week and just so pertinent for this and for the times that we live in. 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He is not slow to fulfill his promise. He will make all things right. He will be with his children in every single storm. He catches every single tear we cry in his bottle. He is not slow to keep his promises. He was not slow in sending his son when he waited 2,000 years or so from the time of Abraham, was he? Was he slow? He is not slow now. He is not absent now. May his first coming remind us of this truth. Jesus is the son of David. 
He is the son of Abraham, the promised seed and the promised king. He rules and he reigns. He conquers the unconquerable. He saves and he keeps every one of his promises. What a hope we have. And yet, as we're about to approach the Lord's table right now, do you have, did you grab, if you're taking the Lord's Supper, did you grab the bread and juice on the way in? If you did not, there's some in the back. Dan is back there with a basket. If you need it, he can even bring it to you. Don't open it up yet. Well, I guess you can. We have uh, talked about some amazing truths today. Not because of anything I said, but they are just amazing truths. That Jesus is the coming king. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Our hope is based on nothing that we have done. And yet we get to live as joyful subjects and children of our king. Brothers and sisters of King Jesus. And we're about to share in the Lord's Supper and as we go, we must first confront the sin and fickleness of our own hearts. We can rejoice in all of these truths. We can truly rejoice in them. And yet, simultaneously, same time, we do not want Jesus to rule over parts of our lives. We don't want him to be the king over certain things, right? You can have this much and no more. These are my things. Do not touch my things. Or maybe we don't believe that he can rule over parts of our lives. Yes, you are powerful to change my heart of stone to a heart of flesh, but you cannot change this about me. You don't have the ability. Do we know those thoughts? You can have this, but you cannot have this. You can overcome this, but you cannot overcome this. We can rejoice in the truth, truly rejoice in the truth that the hope we have is by faith alone. And at the same time, by our lives, betray that. Think, well, there's got to be something that we have to bring to it. We've got to add this to what he has done to make ourselves more deserving of his grace. I can, I, can, I can add to this. I can push something onto that table to make him say, oh, now you're truly worthy of my love and my grace. We can rejoice in grace alone through faith alone and live as if it's all on me. I do. I make myself right with God. We can, we can rejoice in the coming kingdom. We can say, yes, come Lord Jesus. We can gather together. And that's why gatherings like this are so important. Because they remind us of the things we really actually rejoice in. We remind one another. But we can do that. We can rejoice and say, it would be amazing for Jesus to come back. 
right? Just not today, please. Not, not right now. Not yet. I've got some things to do. It'll be, it'll be better. Yeah, oh, definitely. I do not want to go to hell. I want to be in heaven. But I'd rather be right here. At least for a little while longer. Our hearts are fickle. Listen, right here is, there are lots of wonderful blessings. We just talked about them. But when right here becomes better than what's next in our hearts and minds, that's not good. That's sin. When we tell Jesus, you're not powerful enough to defeat this sin in my life, that's not good. When we say, I've got to add something to the, to the table to make myself more righteous, more deserving, that's, that's not good. And so as we're about to take the Lord's Supper, let's go before him and confess where these things are true of us. And then I've got some good news on the other side of that prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is true. We are, those of us who are in Christ, have been transformed and transferred. And yet we still see the war that rages within us. And so we can at the same time rejoice that you are king and believe that you're not powerful enough to change us. Lord, where those areas are, are in our lives, may we take a moment to confess them to you. Father, we also see at times that we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice that everything we have is grace. And yet, at the same time, we wrestle. Maybe we believe that we are too unlovable for your grace to extend that far. Or we believe that we need to do something to merit your favor. Father, forgive us for this. Jesus Christ died so that all, all who believe, believe, would be forgiven and given the hope of everlasting life. Forgive us for where we have tried to add to that or have believed and judged ourselves as too far gone to receive your grace. That is not true. We thank you that the gospel tells us that is not true. Father, we rejoice that your kingdom is coming. We see it in measures here on earth. We rejoice in, in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. 
And we give you thanks and praise for the 10,000 blessings you give us here on earth that make this life enjoyable and wonderful and a blessing. But Father, at the same time, we have to confess that at times we do not believe it would be better to be with you. We do not believe that the kingdom being consummated would be better. Forgive us for this, Father. We know it's not true. We know. We know and long for your kingdom to come. But our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are still being cleansed from sin. Forgive us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.